please stand as you're able for the reading of today's New Testament lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 69 to 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said. Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Diane Glaus, for reading our lesson for this fourth Sunday of Lent. Uh, it's so good to see your voice and hear your, uh, to see your face and to hear your voice this morning, and we're grateful to you. Uh, we have felt the presence of the Lord in this place, haven't we? Thank you, Mason, and our praise team for leading us. Alan, Allison, thank you for your prayer uh, this morning. And as, as always, I want to thank our production team for the marvelous work Jeff Wood and our staff do in terms of production in helping us to share this witness uh, through, through the website as well. And to all of you who are with us in person, it's so good to be with you in this place and to worship together. I don't know if you've had the chance to meet Jim Hughes yet. Jim Hughes has joined our staff a week ago or, or two weeks ago actually in congregational care as a part-time uh, pastoral care person with us. He has recently retired from Bellmead United Methodist Church. He's with us this morning. Jim, lift up your hand so people can see you. You will want to greet uh, Dr. Hughes after the service. We're grateful to him for his addition and for the care that he is sharing with us uh, in this place and in this time. Well, if you've been with us since Ash Wednesday, since the official beginning of this season that we call Lent, you know that we're right on the fourth Sunday, right in the thick of this series that we're calling Passion. And in fact, if you look at the letters, uh, you can see the little word signs, the pictures. We're on that second S and you see a description of the scripture that you have heard read with the rooster there. Uh, we're focusing during these 40 days exclusively on two chapters, uh, Matthew chapters 26 and 27, which recall and recount the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I don't have to tell you from our reading even this morning, this is painful stuff. This is difficult reading. It's tough sledding. It's, it's conspiracy. It's false witness. It's betrayal. It's denial. But it's a part of our story. Not to be sidestepped, not to be avoided or circumvented. This is, I think, the real March madness in context. Last weekend, we left off at Gethsemane. The word means olive crush, olive press, a place of prayer, a garden on the east side of Jerusalem at the base of the Mount of Olives. Some of us have been there and prayed there and worshiped there. 
It was there in that prayer place that Judas came, one of the 12, with a posse and betrayed Jesus, you remember, with a kiss. There was a little ruckus that happened there. One of the disciples, as we mentioned last week, pulled out his sword and just started swinging randomly, but Jesus put a stop to it. And he said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And the temple police cuffed Jesus and led him as if he were some kind of criminal to the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, where Jesus was thoroughly deposed, interrogated. In the passage just before, what Diane read for us, trumped-up charges were brought, and it became clear in that scene that Jesus would not survive the week. And of course, as we've said from the beginning, none of this is a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knows where the path is going. He has predicted it repeatedly in Matthew's gospel, four times at least, but for his friends, when the heat was gone, when, when push came to shove, every one of them bolted except for one, Peter. From the garden trouble, Peter follows Jesus to the trial, to the courtyard outside of Caiaphas's house. Although verse 58 states clearly that Peter is now following, get this, at a distance. That's a curious line, isn't it? It's hard to do discipleship at a distance. We've learned that, haven't we? We've learned a lot over the last year about distance learning. It's a way of educating students remotely, online. It's convenient, and it's been absolutely necessary, and it's been so helpful. And we've learned so much technologically during this time. You can do it in your pajamas that's one of the drawbacks about being in person is you have to put on a shirt. You have to put on your socks. You have to take off your jammies. Uh, I've had so many folks who have emailed me or called me and said, Pastor, we love worshiping with you on the sofa uh, with our coffee and our PJs. And I get it. Uh, you, you don't know exactly how I'm completely dressed underneath this robe now, do you? Distance learning. It's not going away, it's necessary, it's helpful, it's meaningful, especially in a crisis. But I don't have to tell you that it can be exhausting. If you, like I, have sometimes spent 10 to 12 hours in Zoom conferences, you know that there's an energy lacking in distance learning that can't be substituted for. It's exhausting sometimes. Virtual cannot fully replace visceral. Remote is not the same as residential. There are distractions. There are babies crying. There are buzzers buzzing, alarms going off, telephones ringing. And I've noticed that it's not easy to be accountable at a distance. Peter's following now, Jesus, as he was, but at a distance. Why? Fear. He's afraid. Standing outside the trial, the apostle Peter is afraid that the same thing that is happening to Jesus is going to happen to him. And by the way, that fear is not illegitimate. <laughs> 
If you know the rest of the story, you know that Simon Peter eventually, ultimately, will indeed suffer the same fate of Jesus, except that he will choose to be crucified upside down. And so at this fearful spot, if Peter, Peter knows, if he gets too close to the trial, it's going to be guilt by association, and it's going to be curtains for him too. And so he follows at a distance to the text. While Peter is in the courtyard, he's outside the trial, a servant girl corners him and says, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter, of course, denies it. He replies, I don't know what you're talking about. And later, out on the porch, notice He's getting more and more distant now from Jesus. As he's out on the porch, another servant girl says to the bystanders about Simon, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. And a second time he denies, although this time with an oath. You remember what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount about oaths? He said, you don't need to make a vow or an oath. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. His distance learning is becoming more and more distant. And he speaks with an oath. Cross my heart, hope to die. I don't know the man. And now he's not just denying his confession. He's disassociating completely with Jesus. And a third time, one of the onlookers says, surely you are one of them. Get this, for your dialect betrays you. Now, pause it there for just a second. Galileans were known for having a dialect that was very distinct from Judeans. In other words, folk up north didn't talk like folk down south. In the first century, Judean rabbis often looked down on Galilean Jews because of what they called a lazy tongue, sloppy speech, improper grammar. In fact, there is evidence to support and to suggest that Judean rabbis in the first century were even opposed to Galilean Jews speaking in the temple for fear that they might mispronounce the words in their prayers and offend the ears of God. Racial profiling is not the only form of prejudice. Linguistic profiling is also a form of discrimination. Linguistic profiling is the auditory equivalent of discrimination. Dr. John Baugh, professor of American University at St. Louis, actually coined this term, linguistic profiling. It is the practice, sometimes unconscious practice, of identifying the social characteristics of an individual based on auditory cues, especially dialect and accent. Dr. Ball discovered and found in his TED Talk at Emory University, he found, he said, in his research, how often we make snap judgments based on the sound of a person's voice. And we sometimes, at least I have, will write people off because of their dialect. 
We do it racially, we do it ethnically, we even do it regionally. For example, you can tell an East Tennessean from a Middle Tennessean by the way they pronounce the name of our state. If they say Tennessee, but the emphasis on the first syllable, they're obviously from East Tennessee. If they say it correctly, Tennessee, you know that they're from, Middle T- they're from Nashville. And by the way, natives know it's not Nashville, it's Nashville. We know that. Everybody ought to know that. In fact, you can tell a native from an outsider by the way you pronounce Murray County, right? Columbia, it's spelled Murray, but any idiot knows that the proper pronunciation is Murray or Shelbyville. When someone says, have you been to Shelbyville? I know they're not from around here. It's Shelbyville. Linguistic profiling is nothing new. It is as old as the New Testament, and sometimes we use it not only to determine origin, but to determine relationship and worth. Peter is actually being profiled in the courtyard. Listen, surely... She said, you are one of them. You see, it's us and them at this point. Surely you are one of them for your accent, your dialect betrays you. And at this point, he's really scared. <laughs> and it, isn't it interesting when we get really fearful, we get really adamant. And he gets so adamant in his denial that he actually invokes a curse on Jesus. He swears an oath. He, in essence, says, I swear to God, I don't know this blankety-blank man. And now he's gone past denial. That's abandonment. (laughs) That's alienation. And in the distance, the rooster crows. And he remembers Truly, I tell you, said Jesus, this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. He remembered. Surely, he also remembered his earlier bravado after the supper before the garden. He said to Jesus, look, even if everybody deserts you, not me, I will never abandon you. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And the rooster crowed. I imagine, though it's not in the scripture, but I imagine that Simon Peter also was haunted by Jesus' earlier words in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, when Jesus said to his disciples, Everyone therefore who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever denies me, Before others, I will also deny by my my Father in heaven. It had to be crushing when he realized how quickly he had gone from courage to cowardice. Have you ever gone that quickly? Have you ever heard the rooster crow on your own faith? And failed him. Indeed, verse 75 says that Peter was so crushed by what he had done that he went out and wept bitterly. 
No explanation is given for his threefold denial other than earlier in Gethsemane. I, I think this is where he missed the boat. In Gethsemane at the prayer place, when Jesus was praying, you remember he asked Peter and his friends to stay awake in prayer, and when he came back to check on them, three times Peter had fallen asleep. That's where I lose the battle sometimes. There's a correlation between our lethargy in prayer and our loyalty in a pickle. And Peter, who had followed at a distance, is just sleepwalking through the passion. Three times asleep, three times denied. You know, when I read this, it's intriguing to me that all four Gospels actually recall this story. I think to myself, if I was trying to evangelize the world, I, I might not want to tell everything that I know about my colleagues. You might want to sweep, for example, this little detail under the rug, under the carpet. But these writers are incredibly transparent. They're truthful. They're candid in telling us that the faith journey that we're on, there will be some backsliding. There will be some relapsing. There will be failure. I think it was Winston Churchill who said, success consists of going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And boy, is it true. The times that I have failed Jesus and I've heard the crow. I've eaten it too. The Gospels are staggeringly honest that there will be setbacks, that there will be disappointments, that there will be letdowns. They all messed up, and so have you, and so have I. It's, it's just a part of our story. In fact, I think the only way to avoid failure is to forfeit and that's the biggest failure of all. Someone once said the only way to succeed is to double your failure rate. I think it was Edison who said, I haven't ever failed. I've just found 10,000 ways not to do it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing we need to remember. Jesus doesn't define us by our failure. He defines us by his forgiveness. Now, please hear me. Jesus does not deny our sin. Jesus does not ignore or excuse or rationalize our sin. He does something better. He forgives it. And our response is repentance. The Scripture said when the cock crowed that Peter had remorse, he wept bitterly. But I'm here to tell you it's not enough to feel bad about sin. We must repent of it, turn from it, learn from it, and be willing by God's grace to be different, to change. I think there's one other reason that Matthew actually tells this story. 
At the time that Matthew is writing his gospel, sometime after 70, maybe 80 A.D., persecution is on the rise. The temple has been destroyed, and it's becoming dangerous to be a Christian. It's becoming risky to be a disciple in the late first century, and for some, it's just too hard. And some are turning back. Some in fear are finding it's too costly to follow Jesus. But I have discovered that my worst day with Jesus is better than a thousand days without him. So here is Matthew essentially saying, look, church, look, friends, if the big fisherman, if Simon Peter, to whom Jesus said, you're my rock, upon which I'm going to build a church, if he messed up and Jesus gave him a second chance, he'll give you one too. When we weep over our sin, we, when we express remorse and repentance over our failure and turn to Jesus, there's reconciliation. There's a new day. There's restoration. There's restitution. That's why this story is in the book, because to the church, it is both a warning and a comfort. Mason is right. God is not finished with you yet. Last word. It's a painful word. Just, just after Christmas, just a few months ago, the news broke about Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist who had traveled the globe proclaiming the gospel. He was a hero to me. I read his books. I attended some of his seminars. Uh, he was scheduled, actually, to be a speaker here two years ago and had to cancel because of health reasons. We had a number of his staff that were a part of our church in Lawrenceville, East Atlanta, and he died last fall of cancer after a brief bout with cancer. And then shortly thereafter, the news broke that in recent years that Robbie had been leading a double life. It was crushing. It would be similar to learning that Billy Graham... <laughs> had led a double life. I cannot imagine the pain that he caused these women who came forward. I cannot imagine the grief of his family. And I, I kept thinking when I read it, it can't be true. And, and then I thought, if only he had left a note or even on his deathbed, if he had confessed to this. His daughter, Sarah Davis, is president of RZIM. And I was struck recently by her candor in addressing her dad's sin. And I say this not as a judge. I say this as there but for the grace of God. Go all of us. I say this with pain. His daughter, Sarah Davis, with candor, addressed the issue in written form. She is not defending her father, nor is she trying to protect him. On the contrary, the organization is removing his name from the organization and all materials, all books that bear his name. 
She's emphasizing transparency, repentance, and restitution because she knows that there is something at stake that is greater than her name. And that's the name of Jesus. In a recent statement, she says, and I quote, we continue to grieve deeply for the victims that have been treated in ways that are completely antithetical to the gospel. We also painfully and increasingly recognize organizational failures that have occurred and the repentance that needs to take place in both heart and action, and we are now walking a path of repentance, of restitution, of learning, and serving. Our top priority, she says, is the care, justice, and restitution for all who have been victimized by Robbie's abuse. We anticipate that significant lessons will be learned in all areas of the ministry, and we're grateful for all who have helped us to begin this process. We we are praying for the courage to pursue repentance and to have learners' hearts, and we're trusting God in God's guidance for the future. I, I read those words with tears, and as I read them, I thought about the difference between a faithful response to a moral failure as opposed to a faithless response. One denies, one justifies, one rationalizes, and the other repents. One denies for the sake of power, and the other repents for the sake of the kingdom. And that's what Sarah is doing, and that's what we are to do as we follow Jesus to the cross. It occurred to me that the only difference, I think, between Peter and Judas was not in their failure. They both failed miserably. The difference is that one trusted God's grace more than his own sin. One failed forward in repentance, and one forfeited backward in desolation. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that means is the necessary response to our mess up is to fess up. (laughs) And when we do, there's new life. There's forgiveness. There's a second chance. And there is grace to go the distance, not without consequences, but always with grace. And that's what the passion of Christ is all about. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look on me with thy favor, vouchsafe to me thy grace. May it be so.
for each of you, for me, for us, for Christ's sake, for the kingdom's sake, for passion's sake. Amen.